Volume two, chapter sixteen of Mr. Hogarth's Will. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Hogarth's Will by Catherine Helen Spence. Chapter sixteen. Another goodbye. Emily brightened up wonderfully at the prospect of a return to her old home. She seemed to gain strength every day, and no objection could be made to her going up to Edinburgh to pay her long-promised visit to Peggy Walker before she left England. Mr. and Mrs. Phillips and little Harriet accompanied her, and they took Jane Melville with them, for Elsie could not be spared from the needlework, and she did not wish so much to go to Scotland as Jane did. Peggy was delighted to see her two nurslings, and also to see the young lady to whom she had given a home when she most needed one. Tom eagerly showed Jane what he had done in her absence, and received the commendation he deserved for his industry and his success. Grandfather was very weak, but in very tolerable spirits. This visit from Peggy's friends would be something for him to think on for the short remainder of his life. Mrs. Phillips' beauty and her fine clothes were something new to him, and the liveliness of the girls, and the politeness of their father, and Miss Jean's kind inquiries and kind looks, all did him good. Francis Hogarth met, by appointment, his cousin Jane at Peggy Walker's, where she meant to bid him good-bye, but he was not disposed to do so. "'You must come to Cross Hall, just to give a look at it before you bid the country farewell forever. Mr. Phillips, do come round by Cross Hall, and let Jane see her old home once more.' "'I want so much to see Cross Hall, that Alice tells us such pretty stories about,' said Emily. "'Cross Hall! Is that the name of your place?' said Mrs. Phillips. "'I would like to see it, too, very much. Mr. Phillips will go, of course, if we all wish it.' Jane expected to suffer something in this farewell visit. It was not to be long, but it must be trying. Francis was cruel to ask it, and Mr. Phillips inconsiderate to accept of his invitation. There were some things to be done that were not painful.' When they left the train and got into Frances's carriage, which was her uncle's old one, in which she had been used to ride, for a five miles drive, they passed the gates of Moss Tower, and saw William Dalzell and his young wife riding out, and bowed to both. Then they went to Allendale, for Miss Thompson had expressed the strongest wish to see Miss Melville before her departure for Australia, and Jane, too, was very much pleased to see again one whom she held in such high esteem. There, for the first time, she saw Mr. Sinclair, whose appearance and conversation were quite equal to her expectations, but even he was not so great an object of curiosity to her as Mary Forrester, a niece of Miss Thompson several years older than the girl who had got her new frock at Mrs. Dunn's in Elsie's time. Mary was then on a visit to her aunt, and apparently had the charge of two lovely children, cousins of her own, and grand-nephew and niece of Miss Thompson's. Their parents had gone a voyage in search of health, and Aunt Margaret had invited them to spend the winter at Allendale, and Cousin Mary to keep them company. Jane thought she had never seen a more charming girl than Mary, who was evidently a great favourite with her aunt and Mr. Sinclair. Frank, intelligent and graceful, she looked like a sunbeam in the house. The little Phillipses knew at once that she liked children, and wondered if she knew any of the delightful stories and ballads for which Elsie was famed. The little Monroes would take the Australians out of doors to see the poultry and the wonderful peacock, so Mary and Jane accompanied their charges. Mary had heard so much of Jane that she was disposed to be interested in her, while a new tide of ideas flowed into Jane's mind in relation to this stranger. In all probability this was the girl to whom Frances was likely to become attached when she left the country. And now that it was no unseen, and perhaps impossible person, whom she was to fancy as his wife, but a really pretty and amiable girl, 
Did the thought now give her pain, or awaken any sharp pang of jealousy? Her heart filled with many emotions at the thought, agitating and painful enough, but there was no jealousy. The more she fancied that Frances could love her, the more Jane felt that she must love her too. "'I really half envy you, Miss Melville,' said Mary. "'I wish I could do something for myself. You cannot think how anxiously I watched and wondered how you and your sister got on, and how delighted I was when you got the situation with Mrs. Phillips. Your cousin, too, it must have been a sad weight off his mind. A generous man like him must have felt the terms on which he got the property very cruel.' "'Yes,' said Jane. "'I know he felt it very much. We have great cause to thank God that things have turned out so well as they have done.' "'Well, Miss Melville, do you know I feel quite ashamed to think of the amount of money which our family has cost Aunt Margaret, and after all she has spent on my education, and I really did try my best to learn, too. I feel almost guilty in looking for a situation. There are so many wanting employment that it seems like taking bread out of their mouths, and here am I, a full-grown woman, dependent on other people for mine. There are four girls of us, and only Grace at school now, but yet none of us are doing anything for ourselves.' I spoke to Aunt Margaret about taking a situation, but she said she must have me at Allendale for the winter, on account of Archie and Maggie. After that is over I may speak of it again. You are going to Melbourne, where I have got a brother doing pretty well, but one does not like to be dependent even on a brother. If you think there is any opening there for us, will you let us know through your cousin? We see him very often. Then you stay at Allendale for all this winter? said Jane. Yes, and it will be very pleasant. I like living with Aunt Margaret so much, and John and I were always the two who drew together most of the family, and then Mr. Sinclair is the dearest old gentleman in the world. "'My cousin seems to be favourite of your aunt's,' said Jane. "'I never saw Aunt take to any one at once as she did to him. What a pity your uncle did not take him home. It would have added very much to his happiness and to yours.' It was not like the parting of strangers that took place between Jane Melville and Mary Forrester. "'Will you let me kiss you?' said Jane timidly, as she said good-bye. This was rather a remarkable proceeding on Jane's part, for she was not addicted to the promiscuous oscillations so common among young ladies, but she felt for Mary Forrester no common interest. Mary frankly granted the little request, and they parted to meet again. When, and where, and how? The party then went to Cross Hall, which was unaltered since Jane had left it, and while Mrs. Phillips and the children were resting after their journey, Frances took Mr. Phillips and Jane to look at the cottages he had built, and she mounted her old horse to ride out to see the allotments, which even in this short time showed signs of improvement. There were words of greeting to be said to everybody and to every animal about the place. The old servants were eager to tell her of all the good that had been done, and all that was to be done. They were glad to see her in good health, and apparently in good spirits." Many sad reports had reached Cross Hall about their straitened circumstances when in Edinburgh, and about poor Miss Elsie falling into a decline, and to see and hear that all was so well with the sisters was a pleasant thing for all who were attached to them. After all this had been gone through, she went into the room which had been hers and Elsie's for fifteen years to dress for dinner. The past, the present, and the future all came upon her at once, and she felt as if she could have given the world for the opportunity to give way. Everything was exactly as she had left it. All the furniture which had been taken to Edinburgh had been brought back, and placed as it used to be. "'Can I help you any way, Miss Jane?' said Susan, the upper housemaid, tapping at the door. "'No, thank you,' said Jane. Then, recollecting herself, and hoping that the presence of the girl might help to steady her nerves, "'But stop. Do come in for a little, and brush my hair. I am too tired, I think, to do it, and my head aches a little.' 
Is everything right here? The master said I was to tell him exactly how things used to be, that ye should see na change. All is right, said Jane. If Elsie were here I might forget that I had ever left Cross Hall, and I see that people have no cause to miss us, so that we can go to Australia with lighter hearts. But for all this talk about a light heart, the tears would come into Jane's eyes slowly as she looked out to the familiar scene, and heard the well-known voices, and thought that to-morrow she must leave Cross Hall and Scotland and Francis for ever. Mr. Phillips helped her well to keep up conversation at dinner and during the evening, but after the children had gone to bed and Mrs. Phillips had retired, he thought the cousins might wish to have their quiet talk by themselves, and wish them good-night. "'You have not been in the library yet, Jane,' said Francis. "'Shall we adjourn there? I have a little, a very little business to talk over with you, and I am going to bid you our real farewell to-night, for I am not going to see you on board ship. I dare not.' Jane followed him to the library. She had not been in it since they had searched through her uncle's papers, and had read the letters of Madame de Vericourt together. Francis took from the drawer, which still contained those yellow letters, a paper on which was some writing and figures, and a parcel of banknotes. "'You recollect that you asked me to store the furniture that you left in your room till you saw fit to claim it. After Elsie decided on staying at Mrs. Phillips's, I sent to Peggy's for what you had there, as I think I wrote to you, and Susan saw that everything was placed just as it used to be.' "'Was it so?' "'Yes, exactly so. "'I do not want to part with any of it, "'but I got a valuation taken of it the other day, "'which you see here, "'and I give you the market price for all the things. "'There is no favour in such a commercial transaction as that, surely, "'so here is a little addition to your slender capital. "'You will find the money all right, I think, "'odd shillings and all.' "'All right,' said Jane, "'compelling herself to count the notes "'according to her old methodical way.' "'And you like my cottages, Jane, and you hope great things from the allotments, and you were pleased with my two speeches in Parliament? "'Oh, Jane, if I am ever worth anything I will owe it to you, and now you are going to put half the globe between us. I feel as if I had lost more than half of myself.' Jane could scarcely trust herself to speak. "'It is better so, Francis. "'If you miss me as I know I will miss you, write and tell me so. "'You know, Jane, I love you,' said Francis. "'I feared it. "'Why should you fear it? Is it not the most natural, the most reasonable thing I could do? If you loved me, you would not fear it. I thought that in all your many avocations, and especially in public life, that you would forget this fancy. But it is well that I must leave the country, for then I may hope that you will form another attachment. Write to me when you do so, that I may know I have not permanently deprived you of domestic happiness, and that I may pray for you both. You think you owe me much, but to you I owe still more.' "'Till I knew you had no religion, I never knew the privilege of prayer. "'Even though we may never meet again on earth, "'we can look forward to a happy meeting in heaven. "'Now, Jane, when you women bid good-bye to a friend of your own sex, "'as dear to you as I am to you, "'for in a sense I am dear to you, am I not?' "'Yes, very dear to me,' was wrung out of Jane "'by Frances's earnest looks and words. "'Well, when you bade farewell to Peggy this morning, "'she took you in her arms and kissed you.' You kissed Mary Forrester, a stranger to you, and you are going to leave me, perhaps for ever. Me, who would give my life to serve you, who would give up fortune, fame, and almost duty for your sake, and you will shake hands coldly and say, Good-bye, Francis. Not coldly, my friend, my brother. Do not think I can part from you so. And by an irresistible impulse she turned to her cousin, and felt herself folded for a few seconds in his arms, and kissed with passionate tenderness. This is what might have been ours for life, but for this accursed will, and your notions of what is best for me, 
and perhaps a natural disinclination towards my suit. Reflect, think, before it is too late, make your choice, love in poverty and obscurity, perhaps, but still love. Love is not all, either for you or for me. It is better for us to part. Then you make your choice. But, Jane, if you change your mind, write to me and let me know. I tried to leave off writing at one time, but it did no good, for I could do nothing that did not remind me of you. Then it must be good-bye. May God bless you, my beloved one, now and for ever. May God bless you, my dear Francis, and now farewell. Another sort of farewell from her dismissal of William Dalzell. Centuries had seemed to have passed over her since that first eventful day of her life. She scarcely could identify herself with the woman who had so calmly and so kindly extinguished a fancied partiality, as she sat down in her own room and trembled from head to foot, at the thought of the pain she had given, and the love she had rejected. In the one case she was so perfectly certain that she had done right, in this she was not by any means so clear. As she heard her cousin restlessly pacing up and down the library, she felt tempted to go to him and say she would share his fortunes, and even destroy them for him if he wished it. She looked at the mirror, and wondered at her being so able to excite such an attachment. She looked into her own soul, and did not see anything in it to warrant a man in giving her such a power over him. Duty was clear as to the dismissal of William Dalzell, and the result had proved that she was in the right. And now, when duty was so terribly difficult, surely time, that tardy but certain adjuster of life's inequalities, would justify her both to Francis and herself. William Dalzell's love had appeared to evaporate, but Francis's had grown more intense and passionate, till she felt she could scarcely look at him. But it was true that she had admired his speeches, and that she was ambitious for his success in all his plans. Every one who knew anything about the subject said that Francis Hogarth was the most promising young man who had entered the walls of Parliament at this recent general election. He had given great attention to public business, he had mastered the details with ease, and the principles seemed to be intuitive with him. He had become acquainted with a small band of outsiders, like himself, men of independence and originality, who kept aloof from party, but whose votes were of importance to both parties, and whose approbation was of far more value than that of the strongest partisan. No one could tell to what height he might not rise from such a beginning. The ministry had noticed him favourably, and he was as likely as not to be offered office before the Parliament had expired. Mr. Sinclair had told her how his hopes rested on the new member for the boroughs, and how many public matters and reforms they talked over together, with constant reference to first principles. Jane was so proud of the conquest she had made, and proud of her influence over a man so able and so upright, but now she felt it was dangerous to see too much of him, and his parliamentary life had brought him into far more frequent contact with her now than ever before. She had led him so far in the right direction, but now she feared for her own resolution. She knew she could not withstand many such scenes as she had just gone through, and she saw that there was great wisdom and propriety in her leaving the country that he lived in. From her distant home across the ocean she could hear of his labours and his triumphs, and she hoped after a time of his happiness. But while she reasoned with herself as to the propriety of leaving him, she felt all the bitterness of the lifelong separation. She could no longer disguise the truth from herself. He was as truly half of her as she was of him, and she shivered at the thought of a life to be gone through in which she should never more see his face, or hear his voice. It was as sad a night, and as sleepless, as that she had spent in her cousin's house in Edinburgh, when all doors had seemed to be shut against her, except the faint chance of a sub-matronship in a lunatic asylum. Now two doors were open to her, 
one to a life of toil and dependence for herself, and probably a happy life for Elsie, at the Antipodes, and the other a life of love with the man who had all her heart, and who deserved it all, with a dependent life for Elsie. Even though her own hand had closed the door, she could not help lingering at the threshold, and grieving that she was shut out from the only paradise she cared for. So the good ship sailed next week, bearing Jane from the man who loved her, and whom she loved, and Elsie and Miss Harriet Phillips towards the man whom they both thought loved them. End of chapter 16